Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you guys this morning. Welcome to Alpine Church. It's great to be back with you. We're excited to be worshiping with you today. And, and if you happen to be here for the first time, thank you so much for checking us out. We hope you feel welcome today. We hope that we're able to help you pursue God today. Uh, it's great to be back at the Layton campus. I also want to send a special welcome out to those of you who are worshiping with us through our online campus this morning. Uh, my name is John Bellis. I'm the lead pastor up at the Alpine Logan campus, and I'm excited to be digging into God's Word with you today as we wrap up our final lesson on the prodigal. I was just here two weeks ago. I didn't think I'd have the opportunity to be back with you so soon, but as many of you may know, Pastor John Swan tried to do his best evil Knievel impersonation on the mountain last Sunday, and so he's got some broken ribs and a broken collarbone, and he's going to be laid up for a while, so I'm filling in for him. So if you're thinking of gift ideas for him, I'm thinking training wheels, maybe, for this year. But, uh, but in all seriousness, please continue to keep John in your prayers, keep his family in your prayers. I know they have felt very loved and cared for, so great job, guys, doing that. Uh, if you've missed the last few weeks, we've been going through maybe one of the most famous parables in all the Bible, the parable of the prodigal son. And we've looked at the prodigal son, which was the younger brother who took all of his inheritance and, and ran off and squandered it in wild living, and then came to his senses and came back to the father. Uh, we looked at the extravagant love of the father in week two, and then last week we looked at the older brother who we saw was the rule keeper. And I hope that you've seen through this series, one of the main themes we've been talking about is that no matter how far you are from God, there's still hope from you. Whether you're a rule keeper or a rule breaker, there's nothing that you have done that is bigger than God's grace and God's mercy and God's forgiveness for you. And the other truth that we've been unpacking is that both rule breakers like the prodigal son and rule keepers like the older brother and the religious leaders that Jesus was addressing this parable to can be far from God. Now, I would imagine this series has been challenging in one way or another for most all of us. I hope that when we talked about the extravagant love of the Father, that it was encouraging for you to know that God the Father loves you with an extravagant kind of love. But I would imagine for two groups of people, this series has been more difficult than maybe for the rest of us. The first group of people is those who can identify with the prodigal son. Maybe you've played the part of the prodigal. You've been that prodigal son or prodigal daughter. In a room this size, I'm sure there are some of us who have done things that have alienated ourselves from our parents or other family members or friends. But when you came to your senses and you came running back, you didn't find people running to you with open arms. I mentioned that briefly a couple of weeks ago when I was here, and I would just say if that describes your situation, I would encourage you to stay the course. Keep praying that God would soften their hearts towards you. If you're communicating with them, honor them in the way that you talk to them. If you're not communicating with them, honor them in the way that you talk about them. Then the other group of people that has really been on my heart are those of us who have a prodigal in our lives. Those of us who have been going out and scanning the horizon day after day after day, just hoping today might be the day that prodigal returns but as of yet, they haven't. So if that's you today, I hope this message brings you encouragement. Because today we're going to talk about how to love a prodigal. Now I want to preface this by saying this is not a guaranteed recipe for success. 
Because only God can change someone's heart. Only the Holy Spirit can bring conviction. Now, there are two ways to look at that. The first way is that might frustrate you. You might say, well, I want to know the plan that's going to work. I I want to take control of this situation. I want to know for sure that I can bring the prodigal back in my life. But the reality is you don't control the situation. The other perspective is that's actually very freeing. To know that whether or not the prodigal in your life returns doesn't all hinge on you and how you behave actually gives me much comfort. Because I don't know about you, but I know I've put my foot in my mouth many times with the prodigals in my life. I know that I've let my emotions get out of hand and I've lost my temper. I don't know if I've burned any bridges completely, but I know I've charred a few. And so to know that God's grace and mercy and his plan are bigger than my mistakes and he can still draw the prodigal back brings me much comfort. And so here's our theme for today. You've tried to speak truth to the prodigal in your life, but they're still lost. Maybe it's time to evaluate your approach. And as I say that, I don't intend for you to experience any guilt or any shame. We are not saying that you've been doing it wrong. We are called to speak truth and love to those that we care about. But I think scriptures give us some ideas on some other practical things we can do, some other strategies to try and help draw that prodigal back. And so we're going to look today at five specific things we can do to love the prodigal in our life. And here's the first one. Be honest about your own brokenness. The scripture we're going to look at for that is Luke chapter 6, verses 41 through 42. Jesus is speaking here, and he's telling another parable. He says, and why worry about a speck in your friend's eye when you can have a log in your own? How can you think of saying, friend, let me help you get rid of that speck in your eye when you can't see past the log in your own eye? Hypocrite, first get rid of the log in your own eye, then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. I know it's tempting to say, wait a minute, the first point, you want me to talk about my brokenness? (laughs) I'm not the prodigal here. I'm not the one who's wandered away. When are we going to get to the part where we talk about their brokenness? Well, I want to remind you what led up to Jesus giving the parable of the prodigal son in the first place. So he was talking to religious leaders who were griping and complaining that he was spending time with notorious sinners. That's what led to him telling the story. The religious leaders considered themselves righteous. and They considered those notorious sinners unclean. And in that, they didn't recognize their own brokenness. They didn't realize that even though maybe they didn't struggle with the same sins as the tax collectors and the prostitutes, that before a holy God, they were just as broken. And they couldn't see it. See, when we're honest about our own brokenness, several things happen. First, we're going to have more compassion for the prodigal. When you and I recognize just how broken we really are and how much God has showered his grace and mercy on us, we can't help but be more compassionate. Romans 3.23 tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So the problem is the prodigal isn't the standard The standard is God's holy perfection. 
But so often we want to compare ourselves to the prodigal. We want to compare ourselves to someone who's farther from God than we are, and we get this indignant self-righteousness. But when we look at God's standard, we recognize just how broken we really are. And it leads us to be more compassionate. We begin to appreciate that without God's grace, we would be just as far from Him as the prodigals in our life. The second thing that happens when we recognize our brokenness is we're more approachable. If we're more approachable, it's going to be easier for that prodigal to make that 180-degree turn and come back to us. And then third, and this is what Jesus is talking about in this story, is when we remove the log from our eye, we're going to be able to see more clearly to help our friends who have a speck in their eye. So we all have blinders to the sin in our life. We all have issues in our life that that most of us have had for so long we don't even realize they're still there. Not only does that affect our own ability to recognize where we're far from God, but it hurts our ability to help a friend who has a speck in their eye. And it's really important to remember that Jesus said, first, get rid of the log in your own eye. You don't say first unless something else is coming along, right? You don't say first unless there's another command, another thing to do here. It's a first then. First get the log out of your own eye. Then you can help your friend with the speck in their eye. Jesus is not saying to not adjust or address, excuse me, the speck in our friend's eye. Just the opposite. He's telling us to do it. It's a two-step command. First address the log in your eye, then you can help your friend with the speck in their eye. Core value number two at Alpine Church is we work hard at healthy relationships. We think the best at others and we speak the truth in love. So I want to encourage us to continue to be courageous about speaking the truth. But as we do it, let's be honest about our own brokenness. It's going to bring us up to point number two. Be the one to absorb the offense. Paul is writing in Romans 15. He says, we who are strong have an obligation. It's not a suggestion. We have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Now, for some context, Paul had just finished speaking in the previous chapter about receiving those who were weaker in the faith, and he was specifically talking about dietary issues. He was talking about receiving those who wouldn't eat meat for spiritual purposes. And interestingly enough, he actually says that the stricter believers were the weaker ones. And Paul considered the stricter ones weaker, and it wasn't because they only ate vegetables Though that's what I tell my wife when she tells me to cut down on the elk steaks and the hamburgers. I'm like, honey, Paul said that would make me a weaker Christian. I'm not, I'm not just going to eat veggies. <laughs> but the reason they were weaker was because of their legalistic attitude and their lack of love to their fellow believers. And then here in chapter 15, he says that we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. And I've been thinking a lot this week and praying about this idea of absorbing the offense. What happens when a sponge absorbs something? It sucks it up, right? So in my most gentle, kindest pastoral voice, sometimes you just need to suck it up, buttercup. (laughs) Sometimes you just need to take one for the team. You just need to bear the offense. 
Proverbs 19.11 says that good sense makes one slow to anger and it is his glory to overlook an offense. The father modeled this perfectly in the parable of the prodigal son. See, the son brought shame on his dad when he asked for the money before his father had died. And we never see once the father complain about it. I know we don't really live in a shame and honor culture, so it's kind of hard for us to get our mind around that. But when the son asked for the inheritance early, it put a black mark on the name of that family. It brought shame and dishonor to the dad and to the older brother. That's one of the reasons the older brother had such a hard time accepting the younger brother back. But you don't see the dad complain about it at all in the story. In fact, if we go back in the story, verse 12 of chapter 15, it says, The younger son told his father, I want my share of the estate now before you die. Very next sentence. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his two sons. He absorbed the offense. We don't see the dad lecture him about the shame that he had brought upon the family. I wish I could say that I've done a great job with this step. But multiple times I've botched this with prodigals in my life. In fact, just recently, I've, I've got a family member that has wandered far from God, and I was praying for her, and, and I felt like God put it on my heart just to reach out, just to check in on her, see how she was doing, see if she needed anything, see how I could be praying for her. So I, I sent her a text and just said, hey, I just wanted to check in, let you know that I love you. I wanted to see how things were going. Is there anything I can be praying about for you? And crickets. <laughs> Didn't even get a response. And about two weeks later, I ran into her up at the hospital as I was up there visiting my dad before he passed. And what do you think I did? I brought it up. (laughs) In the middle of all that emotion, in the middle of all that was going on, I wanted to gripe at her for ghosting me on that text. And as you can imagine, that conversation did not go very well. How foolish and selfish of me. I would have been far better off to just suck it up and absorb the offense. I want to make sure that I'm clear that absorbing the offense doesn't mean we're a doormat. It doesn't mean that we just always let people walk all over us. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't have healthy boundaries. We should have healthy boundaries. That's not what we're saying. Remember, forgiveness is a gift, but trust is earned. So if you have a prodigal in your life who has broken your trust, they need to earn that trust back. You give them forgiveness but they need to earn trust. Healthy boundaries are good. And if you have a prodigal that has caused you physical harm, I'm absolutely not saying to allow that to happen. Do not allow that to happen. Put up healthy boundaries. But there are going to be times when people who are farther from God or weaker in the faith are going to sin against us. And the best thing that we can do to show them the love and mercy of God is just suck it up. Just bear the offense. It's going to take us to point number three. In your extravagance, don't enable sin. Galatians 6.1, Dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path. And be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself. Now, this point is really important because the last point, you may think that we're never supposed to call someone out for sin. Again, that's not what absorbing the offense means. We are supposed to love extravagantly, but not enable sin. And Galatians 6.1 gives us some great instruction on how to do that. The first thing I notice, it says, if another believer 
is overcome by some sin. That's not our place to judge the outside world. In fact, it amazes me how surprised many Christians get, including myself, when the world acts like the world. <laughs> they don't know any better. That's what they do. We, we should be surprised that the world isn't even more depraved than they are without Jesus in their lives. Here's how Paul said it in 1 Corinthians 5.12. He said, It isn't my responsibility to judge outsiders, but it certainly is your responsibility to judge those inside the church who are sinning. So if another believer is overcome by some sin, we who are godly should gently and humbly restore them. It doesn't say we who are perfect. It says we who are godly. We don't have to be free from all sin to help restore a brother or sister. But our life should exhibit a willingness to submit to God's authority. It should be a life that exhibits wanting to honor Him in the way that we live. And then when we do that, what is our motivation for confronting a believer who's caught in sin? Is it to make ourselves feel better? Is it to show everybody that we know the rules? <laughs> it should be because we want to restore them. The New Living Translation that we use on Sundays says to get them back on the right path most translations say, restore them. And the, the original Greek word used there is katarizo. It means to put back into place, to restore something to its former position. Outside of the New Testament, when this word was used, it was a medical term that talked about resetting a fractured bone, putting it back in place, putting it back where it's supposed to be. So the motivation is to restore them. See, those who are caught in sin don't need to be ignored. That's what usually happens. We know the conversation is going to be difficult. We know it's tough, so we just kind of tend to shy away and we ignore them, and then the relationship starts to fade away. They don't need to be ignored. Nor do they need to be excused. That's the other trap that we fall into, especially when it's someone who's very close to us, someone that we love, we excuse the behavior. And we start to look at things that in God's word are clearly black and white and we want to start making them gray because we love this person. We excuse the behavior. Sometimes we even encourage it. Friends, that may seem like a loving approach, but I promise you it's not. Because the wages of sin are death. There's death and destruction when someone we love is caught in sin. They also don't need to be destroyed. We don't need to come in with both guns blazing from a holier-thou position and destroy them. They need to be restored. They need restoration, and we do that humbly and gently. Now, we all know we might do that humbly and gently, and it might not still work out the way we want. It might still blow up in our face. They might say, hey, I'm not going to receive that from you. You don't have any right to say that to me. You're not perfect yourself, but I can almost guarantee you if we don't come in humbly and gently, that's how they're going to respond. It's going to blow up in our face. So what does that look like? Sometimes I think on Sundays we throw these churchy terms around like humbly and gently. Well, if I have to have a hard conversation this week with someone, what does that actually look like? Well, let me give you a couple of suggestions. First, examine your motive. Honestly ask yourself why I'm going to have this conversation. Is it to bring restoration? And along with that, ask, am I the right person to have this conversation? Second, start with affirming something positive about them. 
Third, recognize that you have a limited perspective and maybe you don't know the whole story. And then fourth, remind them that you're coming from a place of brokenness as well. So let let me give you an example. Let's say that you feel like you need to confront a brother or sister in Christ that you feel is, is struggling with drunkenness. You've been out with them a few times, you've been out socializing, and more than once they've gotten drunk, and you you recognize God's word says drunkenness is a sin, and so you want to have that conversation. First thing that I would do is check your heart, check your motives. Why do you want to have it? Hopefully it's because you want to restore them. Then I would start off by affirming them. I would say, hey man, one of the things I love about you and respect about you is I know you want to honor God in all areas of your life. I know that you want to be a genuine guy, and you don't want to honor him just on Sundays. The last couple of times you and I have been out, it seems to me that you've had a few too many and you've got caught in drunkenness. Am I seeing that the right way? Would you agree with that perspective? Help me understand what's going on. And the reason I'm asking that is because I have areas in my life where I need you to help me. I need you to help me grow and I just want to do the same for you. Now again, you might go through all of those steps and it might still blow up in your face. That's a chance you have to take if you really love and care for that person. And the other thing Paul warns us about is not to fall into the same temptation ourselves. And I read that and I think, man, that is crazy. When we look at someone who's, who's going through destruction and, and hurt and pain because of sin, you would think the last thing that would happen is we'd fall into that same sin. But it's crazy how often that happens. I would particularly encourage any of you who are thinking about going into vocational ministry to be very, very careful of that. There are so many pastors and youth leaders and worship leaders who have fallen into the same temptations they're trying to counsel people in. So let's make sure that we're looking to restore people. And as we do it, let's be humble, let's be gentle, and let's be careful. That's going to take us into point number four. Stop trying to control every outcome. Matthew 6.34, Jesus is talking here and he says, So don't worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will bring its own worries. Today's trouble is enough for today. And some of you are probably thinking, amen, right? You're in a tough season. Now, this can be a really tough one, especially if you like to feel like you're in control. This can be really tough when we're talking about our kids, especially if you have a child that you feel is prodigal. Because as a parent, we want to try and protect our kids. We want to try and, and keep them from harm. We want to try and control every little detail I'm not saying we should be lazy. We should be intentional. But sometimes we need to let go and let God. (laughs) Sometimes we need to remember to let God do the things that only God can do. We said at the very beginning, only God can change someone's heart. And if we don't ever allow our kids to have any moments that challenge their faith, how's their faith going to grow? Faith's like a muscle. It only grows when we work it, when we exercise it. One of the more famous passages to parents about being intentional with helping our kids pursue God is Deuteronomy 6, 6, and 7. It's one you've probably heard a hundred times. It says, And you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands that I'm giving you today. Repeat them again and again to your children. Talk about them when you're at home, when you're on the road, when you're going to bed, and when you're getting up. The command to parents in those verses is centered around what they can control. Nowhere in there does God say, try to control every circumstance surrounding your kids. He talks first to the parents about them pursuing God wholeheartedly. 
He reminds him first, hey, look, you can't teach your kids to do something you're not doing yourself, so you commit yourself wholeheartedly to my commands. Then you be intentional about talking about it. When you're on the road, when you get up, when you lie down. Never did he say to try and control everything that happens to our children. Think about it from the father's perspective in the parable of the prodigal son. He didn't try to control the situation. I would submit to you that the father had a really good idea the kid was going to blow all the money. <laughs> we, we know our kids, right? The father knew the son had self-control issues. That's why he's asking for the money before the dad had passed away. So someone with self-control issues who all of a sudden has a lot of money in their possession, they're probably going to blow it. The father knew it, and he didn't try to control it. He didn't try to stop it from happening. He allowed the son to go through that learning experience on his own. And we obviously want to be wise. We want to be careful in what we allow our kids access to. We want to know who they're hanging out with. We want to put in healthy boundaries. That's all important. But we got to give them some room to breathe. I want my kids to make some mistakes while they're still in my house. Because then I get to have honest conversations with them about my love for them, that my love's not conditional and God's love isn't conditional. I get to have conversations that God's boundaries are for our good, not because he's just some cosmic killjoy who likes to say no. We get to have honest conversations about the consequences for bad decisions. Don't try to control every situation. I think as a parent, sometimes it's hard to know, well, what can I control and what can I not, right? It makes me think of the serenity prayer. This is pretty famous. You, you see it around. It's used in a lot of recovery programs. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. That's one of my prayers for me as a parent. If you're a parent, that's one of my prayers for you, that God would give you serenity, courage, and wisdom as you seek to raise your kids and bring back the prodigals. And I want to pray for one last, or talk about one last point, and that's pray that God would do whatever it takes. John 16, 7 and 8, again, Jesus is talking here. He says, but in fact, it is best for you that I go away because if I don't, the advocate won't come. If I do go away, then I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world of its sin and of God's righteousness, and of the coming judgment. This can be an absolutely terrifying prayer to pray. God, do whatever it takes to draw them back. What if the father in the story had prayed for God to spare his son from the famine? I would say that he likely never would have returned. See, after the son squandered all his money, he didn't repent. He didn't turn back to the father once the money was gone. He went and got a job as a pig farmer. And if you know anything about Jewish culture, that would have been a humiliating job for him. It would have made him unclean. He still didn't repent. It wasn't until the famine hit and he was starving to death that he repented and went back to the father. Sometimes we have to hit rock bottom before we turn back to God. See, in John 16, Jesus is giving the disciples some of the worst news they'd ever heard that he's getting ready to leave. But he says, it's good that I go away because if I go away, the advocate, the Holy Spirit will come. He took something that sounded very bad and something very beautiful came out of it. I have a really good friend who passed away earlier this year from COVID pneumonia. 
And I remember last fall in our men's group, he asked us to pray for one of his family members who was a prodigal. And it was a very courageous prayer. She was getting ready to go to a sentencing hearing for some criminal charges. And he didn't ask us to pray that she wouldn't have to go to jail. Instead, he said, I, I just want us to pray that God will do whatever it takes to draw her to him. If it's going to take her going to jail for a long period of time to get clean, then I hope she goes to jail. If it's going to take her hitting rock bottom to come to God, I hope they throw the book at her. He said, but if getting off of this is going to help her recognize the mercy and the forgiveness of God, then I hope she's acquitted. It was a powerful and courageous prayer. In spite of the hardship it might bring on him and his wife, he prayed that God would do whatever it took to bring her back to him. So I would just encourage you, if you find yourself constantly praying for God to deliver your prodigal from all the consequences in their life, maybe it's time to switch up that prayer. and Say, God, I just want you to do whatever it takes to draw them back to you. I want to wrap up with one last passage that gives me a lot of encouragement. I hope it does you. Philippians 1.6 says, And I am certain that God who began the good work within you will continue his work until it's finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. And Paul is writing this to believers. And he says, Because God is the one who began the work in you, I'm confident that he's going to finish it. We have such a narrow perspective on what God is up to. We see such a small part of the story, but he sees the big picture. God may be using the brokenness in the life of your prodigal to bring him even more glory when he draws them back to you. So as we wrap up today, I just want to remind you, number one, God loves the prodigal in your life even more than you do. And as we leave here today, I would encourage us to control the things we can control. That's admitting our brokenness. That's absorbing the offense. And that's praying for God to work in a mighty way and then leave the things to God that only he can do. Let's pray. Lord God, I, I take comfort in the fact that I know you love the prodigal even more than I do. You loved me when I was far from you. And God, I look back over my life and I see all these amazing ways that you have, have drawn me to you, how you have continue to pursue me in my highs and in my lows. And I'm thankful for that. God, I want to pray for anyone here who, who is far from you. Maybe they've never thought of a God who runs to them with open arms. They've only thought of a God who, who is aloof or who uh, condemns them. God, I pray that they would know that, that you sent your son to die for their sins so that they don't have to be condemned. And when we put our faith in Jesus, it says that, that you see us through his perfection. I pray that they would know that the second they turn and face you, the second they repent and come towards you, that you run to them with open arms. For those of us who have a prodigal in our lives, God, I just pray that we'd leave here with hope and encouragement, that we'd know that your timing is perfect, that we'd know that you love the prodigal more than we do, Help us to control the things we can and lay the rest at your feet. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.